Today's scripture reading is from Mark 12, 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, be to Christ. Christ. Hey, thanks a lot, Lynn. So, um, so Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, we've already been talking about this a little bit. We're, we're going to actually start a series um, uh, on the book of Ecclesiastes next week. Uh, if you're not familiar with Ecclesiastes, the, the theme, uh, at least on the surface, is vanity of vanities, meaningless, everything is meaningless, uh, everything's a vapor, etc. And so this is really my effort to invite you into my midlife crisis as I uh, prepare to turn 50 this year. Uh, in all seriousness, I think um, it, it's going to catch us all through the side door because it, it while it presents itself on the surface as, as a, a fiercely pessimistic book, it, it is arguably also the, the most fiercely optimistic and hopeful uh, and honest book that, that you'll ever lay your eyes on. So I really look forward to that uh, with, with our community. They'll also be going through Ecclesiastes at CPC in town uh, near Vanderbilt and Belmont and Lipscomb in that area as well. So uh, let's get back, though, to New Year's uh, uh, and, and things that have to do with New Year's. How are your resolutions going so far? It's January the 7th, and, and better yet, how did last year's resolutions go? And uh, I'm asking you those questions because it's true that most of us have a bit of a love-hate relationship with the idea of new beginnings, new goals, new promises, new aspirations. We love the idea of New Year's resolutions because we we love the idea of, of uh, a better version of ourselves, uh, to be more fit, more productive, more socially engaged, uh, more like Jesus Christ, more uh, whatever it is that we envision ourselves being or becoming. But we also have this hate relationship because uh, we're so accustomed to falling short of our ambitions and dreams and the promises that we make. And uh, uh, our friend Annie Downs, I was actually in a conversation with her this past year about New Year's resolutions, and she said, a long time ago, I stopped making New Year's resolutions, and instead, I just do New Year's experiments. And that way, the pressure is off. If I don't follow through, then it was just an experiment anyway. And uh, maybe a few years, a couple decades before that, when the, um, some of you guys may remember the Promise Keepers movement, this, this massive movement for men. And uh, Scotty Smith, who at the time was a pastor of one of our sister churches down the road, Christ Community Church, told me about how they started a group uh, called Promise Breakers. Uh, and and uh, that wasn't at all meant to be, you know, an insult to the Promise Keeper thing as much as it was just a humble acknowledgement that that we really are hopeless to keep even our own word. We are really are hopeless to follow through with our own best intentions 
unless the Spirit of God empowers and strengthens us to move, uh, move us forward. And so, here you've got in the Scripture today a lover of the law of God, and I think his motivations, as far as, as I can tell from reading the, the text, his motivations seem to be good. It seems to be an honest question that's uh, maybe less loaded than some of the other questions that he's getting from uh, other Pharisees who are trying to catch him in his words and trip him up. I think this guy really wants to know what Jesus thinks because he's got some level of respect for Jesus. And uh, he asked the question, Lord, what's the most important command of all? And so here's a guy, sort of the scribe and Pharisee type, right, who comes from a culture that has taken ten commandments the Pharisees had and expanded it to 613 commands. We're going to show you how all in we are. We're going to show you how God and the world, how committed we are. Ten commandments, that's child's play. That's entry level 613. But then here comes Jesus, and and He reduces it down to two. But does He reduce it? You judge for yourself. Verse 29, He's quoting uh, the Hebrew Shema from the book of Deuteronomy. In his answer to the question, what's the most important command of all? Jesus says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. And so, on the one hand, Jesus boils the commands down to two, but on the other and at the same time, He's expanding the accountability to it by taking it not only to behaviors but to motivations of the heart. And really when this love occurs in the heart of a human being, as was the case for Jesus all the time, God's wish becomes your command. Your duty before God becomes pleasurable choice. It's second nature instead of effort. You know, you, you know, Tim Keller likes to say this, you know, if you ask a fish about water, the fish is going to say, what's water? Because the, the fish is just so accustomed to living its life in water that it, it's so natural that the fish is hardly thinking about faithfulness to staying in the water because it's so second nature. And Jesus is saying, when this love gets into the heart, it's going to become more and more second nature and less and less drudgery to give your life completely away to God and to others, and yet it is also impossible, so don't count on yourself getting there anytime soon. You know, like Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, the only way that you know you're keeping the Sermon on the Mount is you've come to the uh, discovery in your own heart that you'll never be able to keep it on your own. And so, what I'd like to do is talk about this, this dual commandment to love under the prism of friendship. And maybe talk about 2018 as our year of friendship. The truth is your friend. The church is your friend. You're needed as a friend, and there's a friend for your every need. Those are the four headings. So, first of all, the truth is your friend. So, in a parallel passage, Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says, you know, this love God, love your neighbor all the law and all the prophets, the whole Bible, everything that God has revealed to us hangs on these two commands alone. You keep these two, you're keeping them all. 
But he's so comprehensive, too, because he, he, he doesn't say these two commands replace all the law and all the prophets. It says these two commands are, are, are the ones that ensure that you're going to fulfill them. He's very comprehensive as opposed to our human nature, which wants to be selective with the Scriptures, that wants to cherry-pick, that wants to rationalize and explain away the parts that we don't understand, the parts that are too uncomfortable, the parts that make us nervous. Love God fully, love your neighbor just like you love yourself, summarizes the entire Bible, which is 100% relevant for 100% of the human race 100% of the time. See, there's, there's a sense in which the, the Scriptures themselves come to us as our friend by calling our bluff, by pointing out our inconsistency. Real-time example, you know, in, in a current cultural conversation, hashtag me too, okay? That's, I'm sure, familiar to most of us right now. Women speaking out and, and, and uh, many in the world rightly being outraged about the reality of powerful men abusing their power, becoming predatorial with the women uh, uh, who report to them and, and, and who depend on them for jobs and so on, and objectifying women. And so, here's the thing. Th these are things that should deeply trouble us, right? And yet, just weeks before Harvey Weinstein that, and that whole story broke out, uh, Hugh Hefner died. Do you remember Hugh Hefner, the, the founder of, of Playboy magazine? And I don't know if you were paying much attention, but, but he was being very positively and affectionately eulogized. His, his life was a visionary life, a champion for civil rights and free speech and, and, and so on. And the same people who are outraged by the things that are happening behind the scenes at NBC are at the same time Praise, singing the praises of the man who created the environment for the things at NBC to happen. Here are a few celebrity quotes and one pastor quote from the New York Times eulogizing the man they called Hef. Hef was a giant in free speech and civil rights, a true original, a true explorer with a keen sense of the future, a great man. May his legacy live on. And, and I don't want to trample on a man's grave, but, 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 but I think this, this, this can be a helpful lesson to us, object lesson to us of how inconsistent we are in our convictions. Because hashtag me too is his legacy. The sex trade is his legacy. Pornography addiction and the way that it oppresses women and, 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 and enslaves women rather than liberating them is his legacy. The disempowerment of women is the legacy the man who was eulogized until Harvey Weinstein happened. And then we're switching our tune. It's the same reporters, the same channels, the same avenues, the same magazines, the same Christians. You know, CNN put it this way, with a little bit of sanity injected. Hefner's notion of the freedom of expression translated into freedom to express men's desire for women and the fantasy that those women would always be ready to comply. Like the truth of God, it's calling our bluff. It's calling out our hypocrisy. It's calling out how we've turned a blind eye so long until it became public, and then all of a sudden we're angry. We're outraged. 
And here you have Jesus. What does this have to do with what Jesus is saying here? Jesus could have chosen any commandment He wanted. He could have gone the traditional family values route and said, here are the ones that matter the most. Honor your mother and father, and you shall not commit adultery. Stay sexually pure and be a good family guy or a good family woman. And if Jesus had chosen the parent command and the sex command, traditional conservatives would have gone hip, hip, hooray, and progressive liberals would have rolled their eyes. Or Jesus could have gone the other direction and said, the ones that really matter are these, you shall not steal and you shall not bear false witness. Both commands are about distorting the justice system, violating and trampling on human rights. To which progressives would say, hip, hip, hooray, and, and maybe some traditional conservatives would start rolling their eyes. Oh, there you go with that social justice stuff again. You see? When he comes in, Jesus does, and he says, you have to love your neighbor with the same amount of passion and energy and resourcing as you love yourself. That is the bar. It should shut my traditionalist mouth that is tempted to say, I have traditional family values and sexual purity, and therefore I'm good. Well, the rich ruler said the same thing to Jesus, and the Jesus, Jesus says, you lack something. You're not even thinking about the poor. They're not even on your radar. Get rid of your money. Get rid of your idol and give it all to the poor, and then come follow. In fact, let that be how you follow me. One thing you lack, and we all lack, you know, at least one thing. He lacked a lot more than one thing. But the love God side of this shuts my progressive mouth that is from, forbidden from saying, all is good with me because I talk about and, and champion the poor and the minority and the refugee and, 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 and those who are disadvantaged. But if I have a low bar on personal morality and ethics, then, then again, I, how am I different from the inconsistent traditional conservative? You see, when Jesus comes to the rich ruler and says, there's one thing you lack, that's also an invitation for all of us to recognize that we lack. And what a generous assessment of Jesus to say it's one thing you lack, so much more that we lack. And it's as if He's saying the Scriptures themselves, the whole Scripture, the whole time for the whole person is your friend. Let the truth help you with what you lack and come follow me and experience the life that you dream of. He's inviting us to become faithful revisionists, not to revise the Scriptures, but to stand under the Scriptures so that they can revise us. So the truth is your friend, the church is your friend. You know, this, this statement, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, one of the ways that Paul unpacks this command throughout his letters is all the one-anothering language of, you know, honor one another above yourselves, forgive one another, you know, be kind and generous to one another, sing words of encouragement to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and so on. All this one-another language. You know, in a sense, you could say that God has given us the local church as an answer to our loneliness. 
in ways that marriage is not the answer to our loneliness because not everybody gets to be married. And sometimes people become more lonely inside of marriage than they ever were outside of marriage. See, the answer to our loneliness is the one institution of God that's going to last beyond this season of redemptive history. In glory there will be no marriage and no giving in marriage, but there will be the church, the bride of Christ. You know, the Atlantic, not long ago, expressed its agreement with with what Thoreau once said, that the mass of men lead quiet lives of desperation, and the Atlantic echoed that with, with an interview that they titled, How to Hire Fake Friends and Family. And it's, it's this whole interview with an entrepreneur in Japan who has started this company. He's, he's hired 800 actors for hire, and people are so lonely that, 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 that people are hiring actors to pretend to be spouses and children and, 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 and best friends and colleagues and that sort of thing. That's how lonely we are as a human race because it's not good to be alone. I mean, you imagine? God said these words into paradise about Adam before anything went wrong with the world. It's not good. Paradise is still not good. It's still not complete. Just Adam and God, that's an incomplete equation. You know, we're going to cover Ecclesiastes. One of the most famous verses from Ecclesiastes, you hear it read at weddings, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. And, and, and we immediately think, well, the third strand is Jesus. When it's us two and Jesus, then, then, then all is well. But that's not what Ecclesiastes is talking about. Ecclesiastes is about saying, this, this little friend group, you need more friends. This little marriage, this little husband and wife, you need more than yourself because you don't have what it takes to bear the weight of this institution that you're in, of this calling that you're in, of this covenant that you You don't have it in yourself to bear that full weight. You need people around you to support you. That's why you make vows in the presence of God and all these witnesses. Same thing when you present a child. You know, it takes a village. There's some wisdom to that. It's why we make vows whenever a child is presented here up front to, 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 to assist the parents in the, the Christian upbringing of these child. We are, we are as serious as a heart attack on that because we cannot bear the weight on our own. The same is true of friendship. Lewis put it this way, you know, speaking of the proper interpretation of that verse from Ecclesiastes, Lewis says in the four loves, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man, that is himself, his full self, into activity. I want other lights than my own light to show all of his facets. Hence, true friendship is the least jealous of loves. Two friends delight to be joined by a third and a third by a fourth, and so on. So, I, I, I'm in a couple of small groups. One is, is the, the connect group that, that Patty and I are in with, with, with several other wonderful people um, that we get to live life with. And then I'm in a group that's all guys. And uh, one of the things that we're all sad about is that one of the guys uh, is going to be transferred out of Nashville in the next, you know, several months. And we're all sort of grieving that. And, and, and we're grieving that we won't see him as much, but we're also grieving because we all know that we're going to miss aspects about each other that only he and his uniqueness can bring out. 
And in fact, we're going to miss aspects of ourselves that only He, in His uniqueness, is able to bring out. And it makes us sad. And it should. Because two friends delight to be joined by a third and by a fourth and so on. This is how God has wired us for communities. Triune. How can we be vitally connected to and made in the image of a God who is both one and three, completely unified and completely plural? Mystery of mysteries, right? And not think that we need community as well. And so maybe a New Year's experiment with regard to the church being our friend is to maybe take a little bit less me time and a little bit more us time. And maybe that's just as simple as showing up on time and not leaving early, of realizing that there is a purposefulness around all that quote-unquote dead time around communion, that, that, that part, that, that other 11 minutes where you're not around the table. That's there for us to mill about like a Thanksgiving meal, to connect with one another, to meet a new person, to ask somebody to lunch, to ask for prayer from somebody, to offer prayer to somebody, for two to be joined by a third and a third by a fourth and so on. That's why we have core communities. That's why we have connect groups. That's why we're launching Men's Porch Night. That's why we have things like a women's ministry. Environments that are there that can, that can nurture the opportunity for intimacy and friendship and nearness in a big old church like ours. The only responsibility that we have is to show up and to exchange less engagement for more engagement, less and let's do less retreating and more presence and more pursuit. The church is your friend, and you're needed as a friend. This is part of why the church is your friend, and it's also why your neighbors and the world and our city is your friend. You are needed as a friend. You shall love. This is the, one of the rare moments where Jesus uses the singular term, you, instead of the, the more common y'all, uh, you, that he uses in the Greek. You shall love, singular. Each one of you is a vital, necessary, important contributor to the life-giving culture that Jesus came to build and that His Holy Spirit has been sent to empower and ignite. Without you here, without you with us, we lose something. But we don't just lose you, we lose parts of each other and parts of ourselves in your absence. And this is a positive honor culture that Jesus is talking about. I mean, Paul, I love how he unpacked it. He says, there should be one competition between Christians. And it's not which church can get the most members. It's not who can get the most power on the elder board. The only competition that that, that we're invited into is this. Paul says it, outdo one another in showing honor to one another. Fiercely compete to outlove one another. You know, Time Magazine came out with this uh, article recently, Eight Types of Friends That You Need in Your Life. That was the title. And the, the friends are the builders who can motivate you, the champions who cheer you on, the collaborators who share your interests, the companions who are all the, always there for you, the connectors who will help you network and open doors, the energizers who, who are good for laughter and fun, the mind openers who will help expand your intelligence, the navigators who can guide you and counsel you through the complexities of life. All is great advice. All are great. We all need those kinds of people, all of them. 
to be connected to. But one glaring absence to me as I read this was this. It doesn't make any room for the underdogs. It, it, it doesn't say you also need underdogs who will actually need your resources, emotional, spiritual, energy, financial. They'll need your resources more than you need theirs. And that's a very tragic absence if that's the way we live our lives. If we live our lives, if we treat other people like commodities, if, if, if friendship is more a consumeristic uh, endeavor, then we're missing out on something beautiful that God offers. And when Jesus is asked the question in Luke chapter 10, who is my neighbor? He flips the question and I say, I'm not going to tell you who your neighbor is. I'm going to show you who your neighbor is, but I'm going to do it by telling you what it means to be a neighbor. And here, is it, here it is. And he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Costly compassion. That's what it means to be a neighbor. Costly compassion. And so when Jesus says, love God with everything you are, Love your neighbor with the same amount of energy and passion and zeal that you love yourself. No wonder at the end of this text, it says, no one dared ask him any more questions. How threatening this is. This, just the very sight of the degree of mercy and other-centeredness and other orientation that Jesus is calling us toward. But here's the comfort. Here's the release valve. He also says, Hear, O Israel. It's a group project where every individual matters. But it's a group. the burden is on the group. The responsibility is on every individual to make it happen. It's a collective endeavor because two are better than one. Two friends delight to be joined by a third and a third by a fourth and so on. This really stirs my affection for our church, by the way. I mean, this is a remarkably... The, the generosity impulse in, in terms of caring for people who are down and out, you know, in an underdog place is, is unbelievably remarkable to me. Here, here's just an example, just one example. Um, a while back, our, the, the, there, was, there, were, there were a couple of people in our choir who were struggling financially. They were going through some things, down on their luck, having a hard time making the bills. And so, so the choir director said, hey, everybody, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but there, some people among us are struggling financially, and we're going to take up, you know, some, some, some money to, to help them. And everybody, you know, contributed through in their part. And it turned out that the person who gave the most to that pot was the person they were making the collection for. Isn't that amazing? like the Macedonians, giving out of scarcity even. Why? Because even from a place of scarcity, the person who has been filled with the love of Christ and the generosity, the wildness of the generosity of Christ, the cup can flow over even from a place of scarcity. Because our wealth ultimately comes from Him and to Him and through Him. And then... A friend for your every need. Speaking of Jesus, you know, Jesus says to us, I have called you friends. And this is really the only effective motivation. This is the only energy resource that we have to follow through with any of these New Year's experiments. 
you know, get on board with Bible reading every day. I hope you will do. He reads truth and she reads truth. I hope you'll read the Bible with me every day and with Patty every day and with Russ and Lisa Ramsey every day, whether it's, it's through the He Reads Truth or She Reads Truth resource or whether it's through whatever plan that you have. I hope you'll be in church every Sunday this year that you're in, in the town of Nashville, Tennessee, unless you're sick or unless you're going to, you know, support somebody else in their baptism or whatever. I hope you'll be here every Sunday of the year. No more me time on Sunday morning. That, that's the time for us. In the same way that you, 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 t- you know, your kid wants to opt out of family dinner, you say, ah, this isn't me time. This is us. This is a God-sanctioned us-ness here. And that's what this is for. But why would we want to live such sacrificial lives? Why would we want to center on something or someones other than ourselves? Because we ourselves have been given a helper You know, you think about it. I got this from last Tuesday's. This is a little preview uh, or post view from last, last week's He Reads Truth. Last Tuesday, the reflection there, it was reflecting on why a perfect, holy, spotless, blameless Jesus would, would need to go under the cleansing waters of baptism. Why would Jesus have to be baptized? And, 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 and the insight was this. There had been others who'd gone in the water before him for John the baptizer to baptize. And because of that, the water was contaminated when Jesus got in there. And so, while we go under the waters of baptism to be cleansed, Jesus went under the waters to have our contamination poured all over Him so that He could absorb it, so that He could carry the freight of it. And here's what the reflection goes on to say. Imagine the River Jordan at this time. And it is baptism time, and there is a great line of repentant sinners standing soberly and sorrowing on the bank of the Jordan, waiting to go down into the waters. There's a thief, a drunk, an adulterer, a liar, a bully, a wife beater, an idol worshiper, a torturer, Jesus, a murderer, a forger, a troublemaker, a braggart, a terrorist, a blasphemer, an abuser of children, and hundreds more. Jesus right there in the middle of the list. Everyone a sinner, and then there is Jesus, made in the likeness of sinful flesh, standing in line. This is the compelling inner resource to keep our promises. He's a God for promise breakers. That's who He came for, as the great promise keeper. And, and, and the more we understand, the more we marinate on, the more the Holy Spirit confirms the reality to our hearts that we have been made clean by a promise keeper who went under our contamination and was willing to subject himself to be saturated by our own contamination that we would be, 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 be healed and cleansed. What better reason to fall head over heels in love with him? Think about that and let's pray. Our Father, it has become the case for many that your wish became their command and that the duties of the law became a source of delight. Even Jesus, he said that his food and his drink, his his nourishment, is to do the will of the one who sent him.
And Father, as we approach the table that you've set for us, and you've properly cleansed us through this amazing baptism event, as we approach this table for nourishment, would you nourish our hearts Would you nourish our wills, our imaginations in the same way that you nourished Jesus's whose food and drink was to do the will of the one who sent him? That and that alone is the better version of us. That and that alone is the fish swimming in the water of your love and of your grace and of your cleansing hand that we hardly even notice the water anymore because being in it is so second nature to us. Let that be so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.